Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, straight from the source, in a major ruling, a New York judge has found Donald Trump liable for repeated and persistent fraud, along with two of his adult sons, before the trial even begins putting their family business in serious jeopardy. Plus, former Trump insider Cassidy Hutchinson giving her most revealing interview yet to CNN's Jake Tapper, now warning that the ex-president, in her view, perhaps poses the most grave threat to U.S. democracy ever. In history tonight, as a sitting president striking with auto workers on the picket line for the very first time with his own economy at stake. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Donald Trump and his sons found liable for fraud tonight. A New York Supreme Court justice ruling that the ex-president falsified financial statements for roughly a decade, along with his two adult sons, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump. This decision stems from a lawsuit that was filed by the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, last year. And the judge found that Trump and his company deceived banks and insurers by massively overvaluing his assets and exaggerating his net worth. Trump ignored reality when it suited his business needs, according to this judge, who also wrote, and I'm quoting the judge now, that is a fantasy world, not the real world. This is a major blow for someone who has been a developer that has spent decades bragging about his wealth. Because I'm really proud of my success. I really am. I have made billions of dollars in business making deals. All my life, I made money. I made money. I've always been good making money. I built an unbelievable company. Tremendous cash, tremendous company. One of the best companies. I have some of the greatest assets in the world. I don't need banks. I have a lot of cash. I built a great business with my family. Built a fantastic business. This is all just part of a $250 million lawsuit that Trump is facing, which is scheduled to go on trial here in New York on Monday. Trump responded to the ruling tonight with this massive wall of text attacking the attorney general and the judge and claiming that he is worth more than the numbers that are shown on his financial statements. His lawyer, Chris Kyes, says he and his family will appeal this ruling to, quote, rectify this miscarriage of justice. Joining me now is the man whose testimony jumpstarted this investigation, Trump's former attorney and fixer, Michael Cohen. Michael, obviously, this is a huge ruling against your former boss. What did you make of this? It's a massive uh, ruling that has long been in the wait. I mean, the one thing that Donald Trump is so good at is delaying the inevitable. And Judge uh, Ngoron really had enough. He had enough. I mean, some of the language that was used in this 35-page decision um, demonstrates exactly this point that he just had enough of the games and he was not going to allow uh, Donald's delay tactics to continue. Is your understanding, I mean, is Donald Trump still in business in the state of the New, of New York after this ruling and, and what the judge ruled about his business certificates? The answer is no, because what ultimately happens 
is the attorney general will cease um, to allow those um, companies to exist by pulling the licenses, by pulling uh, its license to be active in the state of New York. So all of those assets will end up going into some form of a receivership. And as a result of the receivership, uh, the companies will end up getting liquidated, especially now that this case is no longer solely about, you know, all cases are bifurcated. So the first part is um, the liability. The second part is damages. There is no more issue of liability. The judge has already determined that the fraud existed. So now it's just an issue of damages. So they're obviously going to try to appeal this. We heard that from the Trump attorney. But you're saying that if they don't, if this stands, that places like Trump Tower and Midtown that has his name on it, that that's no more. Well, Trump Tower, let me be clear, because a lot of people don't understand this. Trump Tower is a condominium, meaning that each and every one of the units are owned in what's called fee simple absolute. It's owned by the by the purchaser, not by Trump. He does have Trump property management that operates the building and receives a fee for it. That will no longer be in existence. So all of the companies that are Trump owned and controlled, yes, but the properties that Trump owns are all fee simple absolute condominiums. But this ruling is a major threat to that, you're it's saying? It's a major. Uh, first of all, all of the golf courses, as an example, Briarcliff Manor, as an example, that will no longer be able to operate under the Trump flag. I mean, as someone who has touted himself long before he was president as this major developer, I mean, what do you think his ruling or his reaction is to that tonight? Well, I had said, and Jamie Gangel actually uh, parroted me today on one of the other CNN shows, that if you really want to get to Donald, the way to do it is through his bank book. Not by saying, oh, he's a narcissistic sociopath or, you know, uh, look at he's definitely not 6'3 and he's not 215 pounds. You go after the wallet. Once you start hitting that that bank book, that's what really gets to him. As I mentioned, so much of this has to do with your testimony that you provided to Congress in 2019. I just want to remind people what it was that you told lawmakers at the time. To your knowledge. Did the president or his company ever inflate assets or revenues? Yes. And uh, was that done with the president's knowledge or direction? Everything was done with the knowledge and at the direction of Mr. Trump. I mean, you were someone who was incredibly close to Donald Trump. There was a reason you were able to provide that information that you did to, to the congressman there and to Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Do you think he regrets that your relationship was severed now that seeing how this ended up? If one would say that Donald was normal, like most human beings, they would say absolutely it was a grave mistake. But Donald doesn't th- see things that way. He may feel it when he's by himself and reflecting upon it. But when it comes to openly acknowledging and admitting, Donald is incapable of fault. He's posting in response to this, we showed that massive statement, essentially saying that he didn't disclose his most valuable asset, which is is his brand. I mean, does he believe that that's really something they should have taken into account here when they're looking at the numbers of what these properties, what these businesses are worth? Yeah. Look, again, when it comes to the value of the brand, sure, 
there was a value to the brand. What's the value of the brand now? Uh, obviously, significantly less. But if you're talking about an asset, well, you need to talk about the asset. What does a brand value have anything to do with overinflating the square footage of your primary residence, his triplex on Fifth Avenue to 33,000 square feet, when the unit is actually 11,000 square feet? What does the brand value have anything to do with claiming it's worth $15,000 a square foot or whatever he put down onto it, when in fact, nothing in the entire area, that building uh, for sure, ever approached a price per square foot, even even in that stratosphere. So Are the answer tonight, is it doesn't. Mar-a-Lago is worth much more than the $18 million that they claimed. So <laughs> what $18 million are you talking about? That's not what he claimed that the value of Mar-a-Lago was. That's what, the, that's what he's saying that the judge ruled, that the, what they found here. He's complaining about the judge's estimate of that. You know, he could certainly have his day in court when it comes to damages, which is where the trial starts on Monday, but I don't think he's going to be successful in any of that. See, Mar-a-Lago is not a house. It's not Donald's house. It is a country club. It's a social club. It is zoned as a social club. So you can't just change zonings simply from a Monday to a Tuesday by saying, well, today I want it to be a house. Therefore, it's going to be under R1 uh, zoning, and therefore it's worth $300 million doesn't work that way. You just talked about, you know, this is still going to trial. This is the judge saying the core of this investigation, that this, what she's saying can stand. If he goes to trial and there's a cash judgment for $250 million, can he pay that okay, or is so, he going to bankruptcy? Okay, so let me begin by saying that there's a lot of mistakes that get made by people in the media, journalists included, when they say this is a $250 million um, lawsuit against Trump and the organization. It is not. It is a baseline of $250 million. You're saying it could be more than I'm that. saying it could go anywhere up to whatever the judge determines. Let's not forget, Alina Haba made a terrible error, um, or Trump somebody, the Trump's attorney, by failing to uh, check off a certain box that had the case as a jury trial. It is now a bench trial. So Judge Ngoron will be the sole decider on what the damages are. The damages, in my estimation, will exceed, with interest and penalty, will exceed $600 million. Does that put the company into bankruptcy? He does not have that liquid cash available in order to pay that off for a multitude of reasons. Many of the assets that he owns, he has limited to no basis in them, like 40 Wall Street, $1 million basis. He also has, say, a $100 million mortgage onto it. If that property sells even for a whopping $400 million, which is probably worth to more. To your point, you're saying he cannot pay that. No, because he's also going to have to pay Uncle Sam tax on the money between the basis and the sale price. He doesn't escape that. Everybody has to pay that. So let's say it's 50%. So that would be $200 million minus the 100 that he owes to the banks on it. So there's $100 million left in order to be used to offset whatever the judgment will be. You know him well. What do you think is going through his mind tonight? I think he's very angry, as I said, and uh, Jamie Gangel repeated it. The way to get to Donald Trump is always via the pocketbook. It's what he cares about most. Michael Cohen, your testimony jump-started this. Thank you for, for coming on to join us tonight. 
Good to see you. And of course, Michael Cohen's book, you can read it, Revenge, How Donald Trump Weaponized the U.S. Department of Justice Against His Critics. You can also listen to his podcast, Mea Culpa, Political Beatdown. For more on this and legal analysis of what this could mean, what it could look like on Monday when Donald Trump is potentially in court, at least his legal team, former federal prosecutor Elliot Williams is here. Elliot, you heard from Michael Cohen just there. We've also heard from Trump's current attorney, Chris Kai, saying that they believe this is, in their quotes, completely disconnected from the facts, from the governing law. They're going to appeal. What can they do? Can they be successful? What's the likelihood of that? It's hard to say. Um, you know, look, I, parties often, when they get slapped down at court, will make a statement saying that this is disconnected from the facts and law. But let's look at what the judge actually did. This was a summary judgment motion, which was, in effect, the judge saying there is no reasonable question of fact, even viewing the facts of this case in the light most favorable to the non-moving party. So let's just assess the case from Trump's perspective. That's what the judge is doing in a summary judgment motion and saying, even under those circumstances, uh, there's just no question of fact. And I think questions such as uh, there was the the triplex that Michael just referred to a moment ago, this idea of inflating the square footage of a property by a factor of three simply could not have been a factual error or mistake. It was evidence of fraud. And so it's not out of the question that this, when it gets appealed, gets affirmed uh, exactly as, uh, you know, in the form that it was written here. Yeah. And the judge was essentially saying, you know, if you're arguing this is subjective. I mean, the judge literally quoted Duck Soup saying, you know, (laughs) who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? But when you look at all of this and what Trump's attorneys were trying to do here in recent days was basically persuade the judge, kind of have this Hail Mary when it came to throwing out these claims. I mean, is that part of what backfired here on Trump's legal team? It's hard to say it backfired for a couple of reasons. Number one, they would have had to file this motion, uh, you know, to file that Hail Mary because they would lose the right to do so later on down the road if the, if the case ultimately went to appeal. Parties have to raise their arguments early on in a trial uh, in order to, it's called preserving your argument for appeal. So that's one. Number two, the government... Um, Tish James, the attorney general's office, would have probably filed for summary judgment anyway. It's very common in cases early on in a civil case to say, we believe our case is so strong that there's no question of facts. So, Your Honor, please dismiss this right outright. So, look, they lost. They got slapped down pretty hard here because that language that the judge uses is pretty aggressive for any sort of judge. But I think this probably would have come out the same way. Uh, I don't think it was a miscalculation on Trump's team's part. Yeah, it is safe to say it is absolutely scathing. Elliot Williams, thank you for that legal analysis of what we saw in this ruling tonight. Also ahead for us tonight, Cassidy Hutchinson, Trump insider, far from finished pulling back the curtain on her former boss. She worked in the White House. She's now delivering a new warning to the United States ahead of the 2024 election in a new interview on CNN. Also, the government set to shut down in four days, run out of money, but House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is still facing an ongoing rebellion from his far right flank. He just spoke moments ago. We'll tell you what he said. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. 
That's A-N-G-I dot com. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Tonight, former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson offering a stark warning about Trump's third bid for the White House. After bursting onto the national stage with explosive testimony to the January 6th Congressional Committee last June, she is now out with a new book titled Enough. It's a revealing portrait of the final chaotic days, more chaotic than we knew, of the Trump White House. And she talked to my colleague Jake Tapper, describing what she believes a second term of Donald Trump's presidency would look like. To me, it is sad that we're in this place as a country where we are looking at somebody who has executed this horrible assault on our democracy and we are continuing to give this person a platform. That's not what we should stand for as Americans. And I think that Donald Trump is the most grave threat that we will face to our our democracy in our lifetime and potentially in American history. When he says things like he wants to use the Department of Justice to go after his enemies, when he says things like he did on Truth Social the other day that he wants to curtail freedom of the press for certain channels and, and that sort of thing. You take him literally. You think he actually means it, and in a second term, he would do that. I think that Donald Trump in a second term does not have any, would not have guardrails. I think we saw that at the end of the first term with how things played out after he lost the election. He violated our Constitution in multiple ways. It is, it is completely fine to wage or to file lawsuits in sure. countries or in states. But what is not okay is when you threaten and assault the Constitution and our institutions of government. I would not put it past Donald Trump, Jake, it, to, to put those institutions of government in a worse position that they were in during the first term. So, as you noted, he's now facing 91 felony charges and four different investigations. Four, he's been indicted four times. You've testified in front of the Georgia grand jury. You were interviewed by federal investigators overseeing the January 6th investigation, an indictment and the classified documents case, an indictment. Um, how do you feel about the charges he's facing? I mean, I know you're not a lawyer, but I, I know that you also read these documents. Um, when you look at the evidence and then when you hear his excuses or his defense, I mean, do you think he's guilty? I want to hold off on providing my personal opinions on that and only because, you know, I. And with the platform that I think we all should look towards and the platform at least that I am trying to adopt in this era of my life is, you know, it is sometimes just as dangerous to speculate about what could be going on behind closed doors at the Justice Department. I am confident in our system of government and I think that we have to leave it to the investigators to be able to collect the facts. And that is why I came forward and testified truthfully to all the investigations. I think that if he is convicted, then that is a conviction that we need to accept as Americans and we need to trust our institutions of government. But I will say this too, Jake, I think these are the people that were running our government at the end of the Trump administration. Yeah, the, very, most, loyal, the most loyal of loyal Trump people. The most loyal of loyal Trump people and who have also been indicted. 
some, some people, some of these individuals have also been indicted. We have to think, what would a second Trump term look like? Would these be the people that are running the government, the people that are currently facing indictments? Who would work for Donald Trump in a second term? That's the question that we need to be asking, or asking ourselves going into this election season. And the one and only Jake Tapper joins me now. Jake, I mean, this was a fascinating, long interview. What do you think was the most revealing thing that, that she talked about in her book and that she talked about with you? Well, first of all, she'd used some of the starkest language I've ever heard about the threat she thinks Donald Trump poses to democracy, saying it's the, the biggest threat in our lifetimes, maybe even in American history. But second of all, what I always think is so interesting about her is the idea that she didn't she was on track to join Trump in Mar-a-Lago, as you know, having covered the Trump White House. And she, you know, Meadows and Trump fired her. She was going to go down there. And that's how she ended up in this track. Um, and I asked her, you know, about this alternate reality where she goes down to Mar-a-Lago and she works there and what would have happened. And she fully acknowledges that her story could have ended up completely different because she was in this push and pull with, on one hand, wanting to do the right thing, knowing that this was wrong and January 6th was horrible, and on the other hand, fear, feeling loyal to Trump and being afraid of what might happen if she left. Yeah, it was fascinating to see her talk about in the book how, you know, after the January 6th impeachment, she was instructed by Mark Meadows to create, you know, the hit list of the Republicans who had oh, voted yeah. against Trump. And to see her go, you know, watching her interview with you, to think about how she went from being the person who created the hit list for Trump to keep so he knew, you know, who had voted against him, to being someone who's written this book, who is speaking publicly about, you know, how difficult it was to make that break. Yeah, I love that hit list because it's not just the names, it's their pictures, right? I mean, um, yeah, I mean, it's, look, she's a, it's a complicated story and that's one of the reasons it's so interesting because it is this journey from Trump loyalist, you know, Mark Meadows says to her, would you take a bullet for Donald Trump? And she says like, well, maybe in my leg, right? She's joking around, but like, that's the kind of environment that she's in, would you take a bullet for him, uh, to somebody that ends up being the star witness against him. And it's really shocking. And now she has this book called Enough, and she's out there saying he is the number one threat to democracy. And saying that he, in her mind, is disqualified from being president again. Yeah, without question, that, that he has disqualified himself because he violated the Constitution. And she's trying to say um, and she's still a Republican. She's watching the debates, hoping that one of these candidates will say something that appeals to her. It sounds like both Chris Christie and, and uh, Nikki Haley uh, have elements that, that uh, attract her, although Nikki Haley, it seems like, maybe disappointed her a bit in not being more forceful about January 6th. Mm -hmm. um, it's a complicated story. It's an interesting story. Uh, and, you know, when you, when you read the book and you see her describe events, and she describes them through the eyes of who she was at the time, right? She doesn't do revisionism. So she doesn't talk about uh, the call with Zelensky in 2019 through the eyes of herself now. She talks about it how she felt about it then. When the, yeah. the Atlantic does the story about how Trump in that um, visit to France for this, uh, the centennial anniversary of World War I, when he calls people, American soldiers who were buried there, who were killed in World War I, when he calls them suckers and losers. And, and they're trying to, you know, tell the Atlantic not, it's not true. And it is true. I mean, as, as I know, as you know, from talking to people who were there, he did say that. Um, you know, she's not reporting that like because she's embarrassed. She's not talking about 
how that story was true. She's, she's talking about how she was trying to, you know, serve the president. She's writing that as who she was then. And then she has this journey and this epiphany, and it's a really interesting story. Yeah, she went from being someone who, I believe it was January 6th or something around that time, it was some trip that they had taken where, like, you could see her on camera, the White House reporters who go with them, lint rolling Mark Meadows' jacket at one point. Like, she was that close to the chief of staff. I think you called her, you know, the, essentially the deputy chief of staff to him at the time, to now saying she's worried what a second Trump term would look like, which is not just what she's saying, but former Secretary Mark Esper, other Trump officials say the same thing. Yeah, you had that great interview with Esper. No, it's, it's what, these, what all of them have been saying. I mean, I remember Alyssa Farah saying to me uh, when we did the, the special, that we did a documentary before the January 6th committee called like Trumping Democracy, I think it was called, in 2021. Mm-hmm. And Alyssa Farah said, in another Trump term, the, you know, what, what they were always able to say to Trump to get him to back off doing really insane things was, you can't do that, you won't get reelected. Mm. And that would always get him away from doing really wild things. But that would not be the case in another Trump term. And we're hearing that from Esper and we're hearing that from Cassidy Hutchinson. Now, there would be no guardrails, none at all. So who would, and she brings this up in the interview, who would he appoint? Who would he put as attorney general? Who would he put as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? And those are serious questions for voters to consider uh, as we enter this presidential contest. Yeah, it was a fascinating interview. Thank you, and thanks for having me on The Source. It's nice. I like like what you've done with the place. (laughs) It's really good. Thank you for joining us to talk about it, Jake. All right, good to see you. Don't worry, we told Jake, our interior decorator. Meanwhile, tonight, with a government shutdown fast approaching and hardline Republicans still in an open rebellion against their own House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, he says tonight he is planning to hold a vote on his version of a stopgap bill this week, even though it's not clear there are the votes to pass it. What that could look like with a member of his caucus who is not in the rebellion faction next. Just in tonight, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he plans to bring his plan to fund the government to the floor on Friday, potentially for a vote. Of course, if he can't get that passed, there is about four days before the government is going to run out of funding. That would mean members of the military working without pay, families in need, not receiving food assistance, some four million federal workers missing a paycheck, potentially. Tonight, leaders of both parties in the Senate say they have a deal to avoid this to keep the government open. Yet in his press conference just moments ago, Speaker McCarthy dismissed that idea and said it's actually the House that is doing all the work. The Senate has done nothing this entire time. The House will continue to act and lead to make this happen. Joining me now, Republican Congressman Mike Lawler of New York. Congressman, thank you for being here. You heard Speaker McCarthy just a few moments ago saying that the House will consider that conservative stopgap bill, even though it's not clear necessarily tonight that there are the votes to pass it. I mean, do you believe that the votes are there or is it clear to you what the strategy is exactly tonight? Well, we're going to work like heck to pass it. I I mean, I've been very clear from the start uh, that I will not support a government shutdown, uh, that we need to do everything we can to avoid one. Uh, Nobody wins in a government shutdown. And in fact, the American people are going to be the ones that get hurt. Uh, At the end of the day, uh, I fundamentally agree uh, with our conference that we need to cut spending. Uh, Joe Biden increased spending by over $5 trillion in new spending in his first two years. 
Uh, that's unsustainable. And our national debt has now crossed $33 trillion. So we absolutely need to rein in spending. We need to go through the single subject appropriations bills. We all agreed to that at the beginning of the year. So this isn't some bright idea uh, that Matt Gates came up with. This was something we all agreed to. Uh, but the bottom line is we're not going to pass them by September 30th, all 12 of them. Uh, the Senate is not going to pass them all by September 30th and get conferenced and agreed upon and passed again and signed into law. And so we need to continue to fund the government. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, the speaker came forth with a proposal that would uh, reduce spending by 8% in the 30-day uh, continuing resolution, as well as enact most of the provisions of H.R. 2 to deal with our border crisis. Yeah, for 30 unfortunately, days. Unfortunately, folks like Matt Gates uh, chose to oppose that uh, for some ridiculous reason uh, and, and came up with this idea that somehow he knows we're going to get four bills passed. These four bills that just got passed in the rule tonight uh, are the same four bills that the speaker proposed bringing to the floor weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, and there's been multiple failed attempts, but you say you're going to work like heck to get it passed on Friday, but if McCarthy can't lose more than four votes. There's already four hardliners saying they will not pass that, no matter how much money for the border is in it or whatever. So what is the plan on Friday night when that fails? Look, if that fails, uh, obviously, uh, the only way forward is with a bipartisan CR. Uh, any final uh, continuing resolution would, of course, be bipartisan because the Democrats control the Senate. The president is a Democrat. Uh, he's going to need to sign off on it. But obviously, when you're trying to pass something through the House, you want to work as a conference. The American people elected a House Republican majority to serve as a check and balance uh, and, and to uh, be able to govern. Yeah. Uh, and so, some of my colleagues uh, have, frankly, been stuck on stupid uh, and, and refused to do what we were elected to do uh, against the vast majority of the conference uh, who have been working uh, to avoid a shutdown. Your colleagues, those Republicans, were on the House floor tonight. They were blaming Democrats and the president, saying that they'll be responsible if there's a government shutdown. This is what some of them were saying. Hey, let's be very clear. If there is a shutdown on Saturday, it is because President Biden, Chuck Schumer, my Democratic colleagues would prefer to shut down the government of the United States than shut down the border of the United States. But, Congressman, that is not what's happening here. You know as well as I do. Well, listen, we haven't passed a continuing resolution through the House to keep the government funded. Uh, and, you know, obviously there's been significant uh, infighting between uh, House Republicans over this. There is no question this administration has failed miserably uh, to secure our border. Six million migrants have crossed through, many of them illegally, uh, since Joe Biden took office. We have a crisis, and it's impacting my home state of New York. Uh, there's no question about that. Chuck Schumer has done absolutely nothing. The speaker is correct when he says that Chuck Schumer and the Senate uh, Democrats have not done anything okay, but on spending or the border. The on spending or the border. These are critical issues. It's not just about spending. Uh, and so we as Republicans have a responsibility to put forth a plan. We need to pass it. Uh, in the absence of passing it, uh, my colleagues' comments uh, don't ring true. Uh, we need to pass a continuing resolution that would keep the government funded 
and have border security. And if Chuck Schumer refuses to secure the border, uh, then, of course, uh, that is correct. But we have to pass something first. You just talked about passing something potentially with Democrats. I mean, you've said that you would sign a discharge position, which a petition which could basically force the, the speaker to bring something for a vote. We've heard from some of those on the far right saying that they will campaign against you and other New York Republicans who are in more moderate areas if you choose to do that. What's your response to the, your fellow colleagues who are threatening that? Bring it. I, I, I mean, give me a break. Look, I'm in a district that Joe Biden won by 10 points. There's 70,000 more Democrats than Republicans. I was elected to be an adult, to be serious, to be sober, uh, and to govern. Uh, And to my colleagues that have put their own uh, personal, uh, you know, uh, views and, uh, you know, position ahead of the conference, uh, go right ahead. You want to come at me? I'll take that fight any day. Congressman Mike Lawler, we will see what the rest of your week looks like on Capitol Hill. Thank you for taking the time to join us tonight. Thank you. With that looming shutdown in Washington, you saw an extraordinary scene playing out in Michigan today. President Biden becoming the first sitting president to ever join a picket line. We'll tell you more of what he told those who are on strike next. Today, a historic image that you saw. President Biden, bullhorn in hand, becoming the first sitting president to join a picket line, placing himself firmly on the side of the striking auto workers that you see there and their fight for higher pay and better benefits from the nation's big three automakers. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Wall Street didn't build the country. The middle class built the country. The president trying to make good on his promise to be the most pro-union president in history, as tomorrow his 2024 potential rival, former President Donald Trump, is going to speak to current and former union members in Detroit, foregoing the Republican presidential debate tomorrow night, and despite the head of the union saying thanks but no thanks, All as Trump is obviously trying to appeal to working class voters in that critical 2024 swing state. Joining me now is someone who knows all of this very closely, President Biden's former labor secretary, the current head of the National Hockey League Players Players Union, Marty Walsh. Secretary, thank you for being here. You know, when Biden was asked today, President Biden was asked if the UAW members deserve that 40 percent raise that they are demanding. He said yes. Were you surprised by that? And what did you just make of seeing him out there on the picket line today? No, I'm not surprised by that. Certainly the president feels that uh, uh, the, the UAW workers, the workers on the picket line and the workers that are worried about being laid off and let go uh, are, are fighting for a raise. And I think he wants to make sure that they're, the, 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 the contract, the agreement they get is a good contract. I mean, these workers went through a lot of pain and suffering in, in 2008 and nine when these companies were going out of business. They sacrificed a lot to save these companies. And now fast forward 2023, there's record profits. And the president, myself, and other people, and the workers, more importantly, 
want to make sure that they have uh, they get good wages here and get an opportunity to, to earn good wages. I think that that's good. Uh, the second part of your question is today is so unbelievably historic. As a union member myself, and put aside all you know whether it's my job now at the NHLPA or, or labor secretary or mayor. Having a president of the United States of America stand on a picket line, working with workers that are on strike, fighting for better wages and benefits and for their families is just simply amazing. It's a big contrast to what Ronald Reagan did 45 years ago when he fired air traffic controllers because they went on strike because they were looking for better, con better contracts. Uh, it's really amazing the president went out there today and did that. Uh, and I, I know the, the workers appreciate it, but it's a bigger message uh, to organize labor saying that this president truly has your back. Yeah, that was something that Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott, invoked Reagan firing those workers. Obviously, this is a very different scenario. They don't work for the government. As I mentioned, though, uh, Marty, yeah, Donald Tim Trump Scott, is... Tim Scott, Tim, Go ahead. Tim Scott said it, but a lot of other candidates for president think the same way. I mean, there's no question about it. Uh, a lot of people celebrated Ronald Reagan and talked about how great he was as a president and what he did standing firm against the air traffic controllers. Those, those people lost their job. So I, I, Tim Scott was the one who said it. I guess he had the courage to say it, but other people feel the same way. Well, and speak, I mean, this is something that is being injected into the entire 2024 race because Donald Trump is going to be in Detroit there tomorrow, the head of the union, Sean Fain, who I know that obviously there's been a lot of coordination with of what what the strategy is here. He seems far from excited about Trump making that visit. This is what he told Wolf Blitzer earlier. I find a pathetic irony that the former president is going to hold a rally for union members at a non-union business. And, and the ultimate show of his how much he cares about our workers was in 2019 when he was the president of the United States. Our workers at GM were on strike for 60 days, for two months. He was missing in action. I see no point in meeting with him because I don't think the man has any has any bit of care about what our workers stand for, what the working class stands for. He serves a billionaire class and that's what's wrong with this country. I'm not sure that Donald Trump would be surprised by that criticism. He and union leaders have never really seen eye to eye, if I'm putting it nicely there, Secretary Walsh. But I mean, Trump won in 2016 in part because of his appeal to working class voters. Do you believe that, I mean, Democrats could underestimate that appeal? What do you make of that? I mean, there's no question about it. Donald Trump's message resonated with a lot of people or, or he wouldn't have been elected president. I think he took a lot of us by surprise, the fact that he won. Uh, his message tomorrow, I'm not sure what it's going to be, but it's going to be about fear. It's going to be all about electric vehicles. It's about how bad they are and they're taking your jobs, which isn't true, uh, because the UAW members who work in those plants will be are making electric vehicles right now. They'll continue to make electric vehicles. Uh, it's, it is kind of ironic that that the former president is going to be uh, in Michigan tomorrow at a non-union building uh, talking to workers. And again, he's, he's going to play off their fears. He's not going to talk about the importance of them getting 40 percent, 30 percent, 25 percent increases. He won't mention that tomorrow. I guarantee you that won't be said tomorrow. He won't talk about their health care. He won't talk about their benefits. He won't talk about their quality of life. What he'll do is he'll, he'll take on the fear and use climate change as an issue uh, to, to bring fear to everyone saying that you're going to lose your jobs, which is not true. Uh, these workers are going to make electric vehicles. They are going to be making batteries. They are going to be creating a clean economy, a clean uh, environment in, for the future. So they're going to be working in this. So it's unfortunate. But I think, you know, uh, today today was a big statement. Whatever whatever Donald Trump says tomorrow, he says it. But today, uh, Joe Biden proved where he stands. He stands with the working people. Secretary Walsh, we'll see where these negotiations go. Thank you for joining tonight with your time. Thank you. 
Also ahead, the retail giant Target has now become a target in and of itself for organized theft, according to the business. It's now closing multiple stores in multiple states as a result. Why is this happening? What is the fix? We'll talk about that with Jonathan Miller next. They are videos that you have no doubt seen on your social media feeds. Organized groups ransacking stores as thieves make off with armloads of goods. Target tonight is pointing to crimes just like those as a reason. They are closing nine stores in four different states. Stores in New York City, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and Oakland. Other big chains have also accused the industry of overhyping the problem, saying essentially that it's a scapegoat. Nationally, this type of crime was down last year when you look at the numbers. But the cities where these Target stores are closing have also been hit by some of the worst type of organized retail crime. To figure out what is going on here, I am joined by CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. I mean, that's the big question. Everyone is seeing this. You hear stores like this saying, this is why we're closing. But then you also hear other retailers say they're just scapegoating for losses. What is actually happening here? Interesting question. Depends where you are. Now, in 2022, the last year we have full stats for, uh, the National Retail Federation put out that organized crime retail offenses are becoming more violent compared to the year before. Respondents said 81% felt they were getting more violent. And this is store associates who feel that the, the robberies are getting more violence the, and, and that their people are being attacked more. The other interesting thing about Target closing stores is where are they closing stores? They're a massive chain nationwide, but they're closing in New York. They're closing in Portland. They're closing in uh, Los Angeles. They're closing in places that had significant bail reform initiatives come up in court. And when you look at the effect of bail reform, the stores also say it's, it's associated with a su substantial increase in retail theft because once you take jail out of the equation as a possibility, from the legal process, um, people think it's just like shopping without money. So it's less of a deterrent, essentially. Uh, much less of a deterrent, because if you look at New York City, we have 300 people who are responsible for 30% of all the shoplifting, and they have over 4,000 arrests between them, and 70% of them are not in jail. This is their job. John Miller, obviously a disturbing trend. Thank you for following it closely for us. Thanks. Also tonight, the Supreme Court has just delivered a pretty scathing smackdown to my home state. In defiance, we'll tell you what they said next. The Supreme Court issuing a clear message to the state of Alabama today that essentially boiled down to, we're not doing this again. The court rejecting requests from state officials in their attempt to sidestep creating a second black majority congressional district in the state which the court ruled back in June that they must do. The justices denying that request for intervention from the state with just a single sentence, no recorded vote, no dissent. Alabama has been ordered to come up with two majority black districts or something quite close to that to better represent the state's 27% black population. The map that Republicans offered still only had one majority black district, but with this decision today, Alabama will now have be on its way to having a new map in time for the 2024 election something that could have national implications. Thank you so much for joining us for this busy news hour tonight. CNN Primetime with Abby Phillips starts right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country.
Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.